Support for the Lincoln Project podcast comes from Odoo. If you feel like you're wasting time and money with your current business software, or just want to know what you could be missing, then you need to join the millions of other users who've switched to Odoo. Odoo is the affordable, all-in-one management software with a library of fully integrated business applications that help you get more done in less time for a fraction of the price. To learn more, visit odoo.com Lincoln. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash Lincoln. Odoo, modern management made simple. Hey everyone, it's Reed. Before we get started, I just want to ask you to go to jointheunion.us. Heed our words, heed the words of President Biden. Get involved in saving American democracy this fall by getting involved in your states and your communities to ensure that pro-democracy candidates win. Go to jointheunion.us and join the fight. And now, on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. This is part two of our latest conversation with Rick Wilson, Joe Trippi, and Stuart Stevens about the 2022 midterms and beyond. If you didn't catch part one of our conversation, we welcome you to give it a listen. Now, let's resume our talk with Rick, Joe, and Stuart. So Joe, in 2016, Hillary Clinton lost, we all know. But she lost not so much because Donald Trump got more votes, although he did, but because a lot of key Democratic constituencies, i.e. African-American voters in places like Detroit and Philadelphia, stayed home. A similar thing happened to Trump in 20, which was 17,000 voters in Wisconsin, you know, 30,000 voters in Pennsylvania, 50,000 voters in Georgia that should have voted for him as the Republican nominee left his name blank, left the presidential line blank. And so how do we make sure that pro-democracy voters don't allow for an undervote in a lot of these key races, whether or not that's Arizona, Nevada, Michigan, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania? Because that's what scares me is not that there aren't enough pro-democracy voters, is that they either don't believe it or don't care enough to show up. Well, the first thing I'd point out is that 2016 and 2020 were presidential years and Donald Trump was on the ballot and he's not on the ballot in 2022. And by the way, neither is Joe Biden. And so if you start looking at 2018, where Democrats did really well in response to Trump and Trump voters were more likely to stay home and did. But what we've seen now is the last five special congressional elections that have occurred this year, Democrats have way overperformed, outperformed what Joe Biden got in respect to the Biden-Trump vote. And you know, we talked about Ryan and Molinaro in New York 19, you know, Alaska. I know it was a different system of voting up there, but the Democrat won. There are real signs, again, since Dobbs, that the energy has moved to the Democratic side. I'd say go through your contact list. Challenge every one of your friends. Make sure that they're voting. And by the way, even think about trying to reach out to some of those friends that you stopped talking to the last two or three years. Pick one or two and just see if you can redo that friendship in a way that sits down, tries to get them to think about what they're doing. Most of them won't. I understand that. And I can see a bunch of people screaming at the podcast right now. But I think nothing gets people to vote more than knowing that their friends are 
asking and counting on them to do it. I mean, it's the peer pressure thing. And so I think that's really important. But I also think there'll be plenty of people who come out, particularly with the message of democracies on the ballot on the Democratic side, and it won't have a whole lot to do with Biden not being on the ballot either. But Stuart, Donald Trump may not be on the ballot, but he sure as heck trying to make everybody believe he is. Just won't go away. And not surprising. I mean, that's his nature. I mean, being president of the United States was the greatest thing for him, not necessarily because of the power and the money, but also because the entire world, all 8 billion of us, had to pay attention to him on a daily basis. Now, you know, we go back more than a month to the FBI searching of Mar-a-Lago and all of the attendant insanity that comes along with that. They can't shut him up. They won't shut him up. He was in Pennsylvania recently with Doug Mastriano going full MAGA. And so talk to us a little bit about, in your mind, what you do think his effect will be, because, you know, I know that there are Republicans in my life who voted for Trump in 16 and 20, but, you know, want rid of him. They don't want him back. One of the things that we forget is Trump won in 16 with 46.1% of the vote. Romney lost in 2012 with 47.2% of the vote. So how did that happen? Basically because there were more third-party voters and the share of the white vote increased in proportion to the non-white vote. And I think that it's a real lesson about intensity here. And it is critical that younger voters in particular, you know, that was Biden's best group, that they understand what is at stake here. And I think that Republicans are doing everything they can to show them. So, I mean, if I had just woken you up in the middle of the night, you know, a few years ago and said, hey, look, there's going to be a law in Texas that if you turn in a woman that you think is getting an abortion, you could make a bunch of money. If you had told me that, I would have said it's crazy. If we had said that 46 different states are voting on or considering or have voted on legislation to increase the power of legislatures to overturn the popular vote, I would have said it was paranoid. But this is stuff that is real. You know, we talk about democracy and when everybody was saying a few months ago, democracy is an ethereal thing. People aren't going to be affected by it because it doesn't affect their lives. I think people are seeing how it does affect their life. Look at what happened in Kansas. And you look at the very smart advertising campaign that the pro-choice side did. It was about freedom. It was about individual rights. It was about an intrusive government. And you look at someone like, you know, Ron DeSantis, you know, he's running a bathroom and bedroom campaign. There's nothing about it that'll make your life better. It's about fear. And ultimately, the Republican Party has become a party about frightful people who are afraid of change. And my old friend and client Haley Barber used to say, well, it was good for politicians to be for the future because it was going to happen anyway. And that's what the Democratic Party really needs to stress here. But Rick, isn't the whole idea behind an authoritarian movement, the idea that the future doesn't matter, the past doesn't matter, it's only the present? You know, Rick Smith, good friend of the Lincoln Project, you know, talking about his Teamster buddies who love Doug Mastriano. And he said, they're going to pass right to work and it's going to ruin your life. And he's like, we don't care. Right. And so they want you to believe that nothing matters. They want you to believe that that good and bad don't exist. Right and wrong don't matter. Up is down, down is up. And that's what so much of this is about is Donald Trump can do anything because law nothing matters anyway. 
the Lowell Nothing Matters movement in 2016 was sort of started by Ben Dominic and a bunch of other sort of cynical Republican media types. And they were laughing. Oh, yeah, Trump's going to do this. No, nothing matters. Ha, ha, ha. Well, once that nihilism took root, it has infected the educated class of the Republican Party, the smart set, the consultants, the lobbyists, a lot of the elected officials. And they stopped caring about the implications because all they want to do is win. And look, one of the things that Lincoln Democracy Institute's doing right now is studying the language of authoritarianism in American politics and how we're going to basically be able to score out people inside of our politics who have just adopted that entire philosophy of nothing matters, live for the moment, crush the enemy, you know, drive the libs into the sea. And if you live in a country like that where your politics are defined in a way that's, you know, my side won, your side lost this time, but my side will achieve the final victory and destroy your side. My side will purge your side. My side will put your side in jail. My side will have the freedom to attack you physically, violently. If you live in that sort of country, you don't live in the America that any of us recognized or have worked for or treasured. You live in somewhere that is essentially on a spectrum of authoritarian to fascist to dictatorship. And those things should frighten the shit out of Americans. And I hope that at least some people still inside the Republican apparatus at some point will recognize there's a bridge too far even for them. I don't think they're gonna. I hope they will. And until they do, that's why it's important to sort of try to break up the Jenga tower, break up the apparatus that has been so effective for the Republicans politically by forcing their voters to look fascism in the face. So, Joe, let's talk about the media for a second. So we've seen CNN had this, for them, big change, right, which was they had plenty of on-air personalities who I think to call them anti-Trump is true, but in the most superficial sense, which is they just were not willing to go on air and put up with the bullshit. They weren't willing to say, well, this is normal. They're willing to lie. And now you have, you know, Jeff Zeleny, Brianna Keeler talking about the Marines at Biden's speech. Now you have Jake Tapper saying that, you know, wouldn't it be clever for Joe Biden to take Donald Trump to Queen Elizabeth II's funeral? Turns out there's not going to be a delegation. So that's sort of moot. But is it just relevance? Is it just 5,000 more eyeballs during the day side? Like they know better, but they don't seem to care. It's all eyeballs. That's what it is. The problem is that the outrage machine of the right, Rupert Murdoch and billionaires in decades of building the damn thing, it's Trump can do no wrong and we will purge you. We will beat you. You know, all the stuff that Rick just outlined, that's who they are. And they've invested billions of dollars to build it. And as the market gets more fragmented, CNN, all of them are trying to figure out how to keep people watching. Well, the only people watching cable are old folks, man. And that's why Fox is winning it. And so I think this is just a bunch of, you know, front office guys thinking they know how to get more eyeballs and it's not going to work. And there is bias in media, but there's no one out there with the bias of being pro-democracy and against all of democracy's enemies. There's plenty of places that want to say, but that's a both sides kind of thing. But I don't see any current networks out there doing what needs to be done. And in fact, they're going to do what CNN's doing, hoping they can hold on to viewers, get more of those Trump viewers away from Fox 
that's not going to happen. A lot of people are very upset about CNN right now because Malone at the mothership of CNN at Time Warner has decided that they're going to follow this, what I think is an illusion. Republican and MAGA media, it's basically Gresham's law, you know, bad drives out good. So why would you go for diet crazy when you can go on Fox and have full crazy? Why would you go for the light version of MAGAism when you can go on OAN and get it shot straight into your veins? And so they're not going to grab the audience they think they're going to grab. And I do think that both sidesism is a absolutely deadly poison in our political and media culture right now. It is an enabling technology for bad guys to just say, yeah, come on, we're not really fascists. We're just Republicans. You have to listen to both arguments. No, if you have Martha Stewart and Hannibal Lecter sitting at a table together and she has recipes and he has recipes, they're not the same thing. You don't want the Hannibal Lecter recipes. But this is an argument that I think is going to continue to consume a lot of Americans because they don't have a place to go. They don't have a place where they feel like there is a bias for truth and democracy and America that isn't crazy and jingoistic on the Fox side or too hypercritical of America on the other side. Because, you know, most Americans, they know we're a flawed country. They get it. They know we're a flawed country, but they don't want it rubbed in their face every single second that everything is doom and gloom. They don't want to feel like it's hopeless. I wish we had a media outlet in the country that spoke to the fight and the urgency of the fight for democracy right now. I wish we had a place where people could sit down and say, we need to clear the decks of all the other ideological baggage that we have and focus on the fact that if we don't get this right and don't get it right today, we could lose this country. I think that's part of what is reflected in the frustration that's been growing about CNN among a lot of folks. But Rick, I mean, I just want to say, look, that's why I joined you guys in the first place. It wasn't right-left. It's not Republicans versus Democrats. It's all of us pro-democracy versus democracy's enemies, and we had to join together. And I do think that same hunger that is there for a media outlet to take that mission on. I think the greatest difficulty that our media has now is this legacy that there is an obligation to tell both sides of a lie, and there's not. It is an outdated concept that comes from this belief that there is an agreeable good that will govern the discussion in America. And what we've discovered in the Trump era so much, a lot of the so-called guardrails of our democracy are in fact voluntary. And, you know, maybe that's what self-governance was about, you know, the idea that you have to govern yourself. And I think that this is the great difficulty that journalists have had covering Trump. And it's the great difficulty that they have covering what the Republican Party has become. But, Stuart, this is where, though, I think that both the media and even some, I'm going to call them, quote unquote, centrist groups, are selling a utopia of a status quo that does not exist anymore. And they can't get over it. They want things to be the way they were, but they'll never be that way. One, because time marches on, but also because, like, that world is by definition over. Trump was elected. A million dead Americans. Russia invades Ukraine, right? Like, we're recording this on September 12th, right? In the 21 years since 9-11, we've had like five or six black swan events. That world in that last 20 years is gone, but so much of the Politico media donor set wants to believe that they can hold on to what 
they have and can go into the future, you know, with maybe blinders and earplugs. And underneath this is the reality that America is becoming a different country. America is becoming a minority majority country. And I think that we don't talk enough about the role of race in this. Because the Republican Party has become a white grievance party. 85% of Trump's coalition is white. The country's 57% white. And since we've been on this podcast, it's become less so. And that is the sort of desperation that is out there in the Republican Party, because there was a sense that they had a birthright, uh, something they could count on by being white. And that's changing. And the Republican Party had a choice. Either do the hard work to ask yourself, why is it we are not appealing to large numbers of non-white voters, particularly African-Americans, or go the other way and try to change the rules? That's the path that Republicans have gone down. And the people out there like Ross Gerard, the New York Times saying, well, things aren't that bad. Does Joe Biden really believe that there's a danger to democracy? The answer is yes, things are that bad. And I think, you know, you talked about this, Reed, the role of language here. It is difficult to have the language to talk about this moment and not sound alarmist. You know, I said this before, it's like a pandemic. Whatever you say at the beginning is going to sound alarmist. And odds are, at the end, you're going to look back on it and think it was way insufficient. And again, it goes back to the lack of a media voice in this country that captures that sense that we are in this struggle and we must fight and the old rules of journalism shouldn't apply. Well, but Joe, I mean, let me talk about a couple of things on that front. So there's the media piece, which you've been deeply embedded in for the last 20 or so years. And then the political piece as a Democrat, which is I was in a very hoity-toity area during the summer and I was talking to a supporter and I said, well, you know, the strength of the Democratic Party is its diversity. I said, but that's also what makes it a little bit fragile, which is, you know, you have the people like you, as I said to this person, who live in a big city on a coast who give lots and lots of money. And your belief system is one that, frankly, does not necessarily comport with somebody who lives in inner city Philadelphia or Columbia, South Carolina. And so I said, you have to ask yourself whether or not you want to be part of a coalition that will win for the greater good or if you want purity. She said, well, I want purity. And I said, well, you can either have that or win. So what do you want to do? And they said, well, I guess I want to win. And I said, doesn't sound like it. And they said, no, I guess it doesn't. Well, that is, as you point out, the strength and the weakness of the Democratic Party. The one advantage that an authoritarian Republican Party has in terms of that 85% white is that all messaging comes from the very top down. And that's why we see the entire party basically bowing and curtsying to Trump, no matter what he does. And now the MAGA base, he's even lost control of. But again, the messaging itself, it's very easy to have that repeated. And also with the outrage machine, just keep repeat, repeat, repeat. And the outrage machine is there and it's all top down. Even that might start to fragment and bust up on them. Hopefully we'll see. But on the Democratic side, yeah, I mean, this has been a problem from the beginning. There is no hierarchy like that. That will never happen in the Democratic Party. Again, that's a strength. There's obviously a fierce debate sometimes. And we saw that early on in the Biden administration as he was trying to get things done, the different wings of the party fighting it out. But I think 
And this happened, by the way, in 92 for Democrats. There was the same just schisms between all the different wings. And having been defeated by Reagan twice and George H.W. Bush for the third time, that arguing and the lack of a coherent message went away. And a guy like Bill Clinton was able to pull all the factions of the party unified and move them and, and win. I think that same kind of inertia is happening right now. Biden got some of that in the run-up to winning. I think we lost that for the first year. Each wing wanted to get what it wanted done. But I think that there really is a response to the threat, a more pragmatic, progressive, pro-democracy coalition, and the understanding among the different wings that they're never going to talk with one voice or have one message. But I think they're getting that the message is, this is democracy versus its enemies, and we've got to compromise and come together. And I think that could be very attractive. It seems to be attractive to the independents out there. And hopefully now if we can get former Republicans, never Trumpers, and some Republicans in this election to leap for the first time. It may be the coalition that actually defeats these folks, because this won't be over in 2022. That coalition is going to have to build through 2024 and 2026, like with the Democrats getting creamed in three straight elections. I think MAGA has to be crushed in three elections. And even then, they'll still be out there. No, and as we sort of swing into the home stretch here, Rick, I was on the phone with a French reporter late last week because I was going through states like Michigan, Pennsylvania, Arizona, and they said, so what you're saying is you really believe that if Doug Mastriano or Kerry Lake wins and Donald Trump's the nominee, that they'll steal the election? And I said, I do. Yes, I know that they will try and do that. And they're like, you really believe that? I'm like, yes, I really believe that. And it was sort of like, what? I mean, they've already said, so. I mean, look, when Doug Mastrano says, I'm going to cancel every voter registration in Pennsylvania and we're going to start from scratch because those people are voting, who do you think those people are? When he says, we're going to decertify the 2020 election for Donald Trump, that means he's going to invalidate votes. York County will suddenly have 25 million registered voters. Right. This is an insanity level that we have not seen in our country. And it is difficult for people in functioning democracies to look at the United States and say, no, that's there. What? They can't imagine it's happening, but it is. And they can't imagine the degree of malicious and sick determination on the part of a lot of people inside the authoritarian movement to really overturn not just the next election, but the entire system of government. Look, they tried to have a coup in 2020, and they failed. So their next stop is to try to rig the system so thoroughly and to act from executive power so completely that they don't have to have the violent part of the coup. They'll do it judicially or legislatively. If Florida is close in the 2024 election and Trump's the nominee, what do you think Ron DeSantis is going to do? Have a real count? Or say, hmm, I'm going to keep my line of victory open for my future presidential ambitions by certifying Trump. We all know what's going to happen in these states. And folks, the fact of the matter is, more states are governed by Republicans than by Democrats. And it is going to stun folks how quickly the sanctity of small d Democratic vote counting is thrown out the window for political preference by Republicans. This point Rick's making can't be stressed enough that there is an entire 
legal framework that they are attempting to build. If it is legal for the Georgia state legislature to overturn the popular vote, when they overturn it, it won't be illegal. Their intention is to make a coup unnecessary, to be able to use the organs of a democracy to end this democracy, which is why they're so in love with Hungary, because that is exactly the Orban model. You can look at it from 10,000 feet and say, well, they still have elections, there's still a court system, there's still a free enterprise system, but all of it is sort of a Potemkin village. There really aren't free elections. The entire economy now has become a theocracy and a kleptocracy the way Trump wanted it to be. And they don't really have free election. And Orban is out there. He knows he's going to be in power for as long as he wants to be, basically, unless something changes. So what happens next? He starts talking about how we have to end mixed race societies. So when you enable these people, they only become more extreme. In the history of the universe, no anti-democratic force became more democratic when it got in power. And that is the danger. Well, that also goes to your piece, Stuart, about, you know, minority rule, right? How many times throughout history has a minority population ruled a majority population through force, legalistic means, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, look, I was there in the Bush world as you were in 2000. You know, we used to joke, and at the time it seemed kind of funny, that anybody could win an election when you got more votes. It's when you lost by half a million it took professionals. We thought that was sort of cute. But Republicans have only won the popular vote twice since 1988 and then 2004. And I think the corrosive effect of having minority elected presidents and then you have a minority appointed Supreme Court, it builds upon itself where people ultimately feel that they don't live in a society that will represent their views because it is minority rule. We have to change the Electoral College any way that we can. There's different state options out there. It's another discussion. But people will become disaffected if they don't believe what they do matters. And I think that's a lot of what the Lincoln Project has been successful in. We have taken people's concerns and used it to fight. And look, the thing that makes us unique and I think successful is that we fight for one thing. We fight for democracy. That's what we do. And I think that's what draws Republicans and Democrats and independents is not trying to find a little bit of the left and a little bit of the right and sort of cobble together some weirdo, non-existent coalition, but to do the things that we believe are right and just for the United States. All right. So lightning round, guys. I got an email at podcast at lincolnproject.us that says, you guys do a great job explaining things. You guys do a good job making sure I know what I need to do, but you don't tell me enough about what I can and should be doing this fall. So Joe, as our resident field expert, as our resident grassroots expert, give our folks, as we start a lightning round here, one thing that you think they should get out and do. I'd say start emailing everybody on their contact list and ask them to vote. Even the friends that have been on the other side of this that you stopped email or talking to, reach out to them. If we each can get our friends, family, and coworkers to be with us and pull a couple of the people we've stopped talking to along, that's not only how we win, but it's basic organizing. Your peers, the people who trust you, your voice is really important and you should use it. Obviously, 
get involved in the campaign and all those other things. But I think the most important thing is you got a hundred friends, make sure they're all voting and make sure you know that they need to be persuaded if they do and persuade them, work on it. You have a lot more power with those people than you believe. Use it. Stuart. One of the things that you can do to help democracy here is pick a cause, a charity in Ukraine and support it. The battle for democracy is being fought by Ukrainians right now. If they lose this fight, the ripple effect of what it will mean for just the future of democracy cannot be overestimated. Your country is doing a great deal, but pick a charity. There are a lot of them out there. Look outside your country and realize we're part of a cause that is not just happening here, but is happening globally. And where that is on the ground being fought is Ukraine. Well, and just remember before I get to Rick that when the Ukrainians saw the Russians coming over the frontier, they didn't stand up and ask them politely to turn around and go home. They dug a trench and they fought for their homeland. And the lucky news is, guys, is that we get to fight for our homeland without guns, without weapons. Rick, what about you? What would you recommend our folks out there do? Folks, I want to go to the micro level. And I've been hearing this from across the country. I've been getting emails from people and DMs that when they check their voter registration, that either their party's been flipped or it's expired. I don't know that Republicans are playing screw around in these states, but a lot of people need to check the status of their voter registration. I'd encourage you to go out and do it today. You can do it online in almost every state. Go check the status of your voter registration. And when you do, request your absentee ballot. This is the most micro thing you can do. It is something you can be personally accountable to right away. And I really encourage people to do it. Check your status. I checked mine over the weekend, and it's still registered as no party affiliation. It was sort of a relief. I was glad to see that it wasn't disappeared off the voter rolls in DeSantis' world down here. So that's what I would recommend people do. And again, when you do that, go ahead and just get your absentee ballot, because that vote cast early means you can dedicate your time, your energy, your bandwidth to helping encourage other people do the things that Joe was talking about in terms of talking to your friends, getting your associates, your family members, et cetera, out there to vote. Well, and guys, as I have said many times on these airwaves, go to jointheunion.us. Join the pro-democracy coalition. As Joe noted, this is one that has to grow and has to grow continuously and fast across the country. Jointheunion.us. Get involved in your state as a poll worker, as an election worker, as a volunteer for an organization, get out the vote, walk blocks, make calls. I know it all seems like it doesn't matter, but in the individual, it does. If you get three more people to vote that wouldn't have voted, you have made the difference between winning and losing this fall. All right, gents, before we go, Rick, where can our listeners find you online? You can find me online at the Rick Wilson on Twitter and Instagram. All right, Joe. At Joe Trippy on Twitter, and please give a listen to that Trippy Show podcast. Listen to that Trippy Show is an excellent show. It's so good. It's so good. And Stuart, where can our folks find you? Find me, unfortunately, on Twitter at Stuart P. Stevens. All right, gang, and as always, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen and on Instagram at Reed underscore Galen underscore LP. Rick, Joe, Stu, I want to thank you all for joining me today, and everybody else, get out there and fight, and we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter 
at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. If you want to message the podcast directly, please send an email to podcast at lincolnproject.us. And if you want to personally join the fight to save our nation's democracy, visit jointheunion.us. Also, be sure to check out our growing LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. And Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Monday at noon Eastern. Plus, we'd love you to check out our newest show, The Game We're In, with Maya May and Trigby Olson, which airs Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on the Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter feeds. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Reed Galen. I'll see you on the next episode. Thank you.